You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. On today's episode, we are rejoined by Dr. Dale Robleski, a retired research scientist, recently retired research scientist with Ducks Unlimited Canada's Institute for Wetlands and Waterfowl Research. And we are going to be continuing our discussion about Delta Marsh, the decline of the habitats in, in that particular location, its impact on waterfowl populations, and then importantly, the, the scientific investigations that were conducted to help identify the problem, and then implementation of conservation solutions. And then we're going to talk a bit about what we're seeing uh, in the wake of those restoration activities. So, Dale, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for spending some more time with us. Well, thank you for having me back again, Mike. Thank you. I think on the last episode, we you had described kind of the decadal changes in what we had seen with respect to, to vegetation, some of the quality veg- vegetation for waterfowl, and then the uh, concomitant decline in those waterfowl populations. And the next thing was to begin to definitively uh, identify what was the cause. I think we had some suspicions that the common carp were a, a big part of the problem. And so I'm going to let you talk about some of that now. What were the steps that you all went through? It's one of the first times that you and I met, you were starting some of that carp research. So just talk to us about the type of research that had to be conducted to identify the problem and then also help inform some of the solutions. Yeah, when I started back uh, working at Delta in the late 90s, there was a lot of concern again about the health of the marsh. Things, particularly through the 90s, were not good. And so we initially, we knew that fish were going to be an issue. We knew that common carp were an issue. Uh, But what we started off with was actually trying to get a better handle on just the large fish community in the marsh. So we did the first gill net surveys there to identify who, who was present in the marsh, how they use the marsh, when they're there. And that's when we really, you know, again, substantiated the casual observations that, geez, there's a lot of carp in that marsh. In fact, 50% of the biomass turned out to be carp. So once we convinced people that, you know, there's a lot of carp here, and if you look through the literature, um, carp are very disruptive to these systems. But the next thing we had to convince people was carp are really important to Delta in terms of the changes that we're seeing in the marsh. And so uh, working with uh, Gordon Goldsboro at the University of Manitoba, we uh, managed to get a, a project funded where we did some experiments Experimental manipulations around the marsh. I talked in the first episode about these large bays, but around those bays are lots of smaller ponds. And some of these are connected and some of these are not connected to the larger bays. And we thought there's an opportunity there to manipulate on a small scale. So you can think of those bays as the lake and those little ponds as the marsh. What if we disrupted the migration of carp or movement of carp into these smaller ponds. Uh, Let's see what happens. Let's see how important they really are to the system. So we found 10 ponds that we could manipulate. So uh, 10 ponds, two of them we actually 
uh, used sandbags and diked them right off. So we essentially isolated them from the main marsh. So now they were connected and now isolated. Two of them, we put these bar screens or jail bar type screens in the channel so that small fish, the water could move back and forth. Small fish could move back and forth, but not large fish, particularly large carp. So we did that to two of the ponds. Uh, two of the ponds um, were not connected to the main marsh. And we actually got to play with ditching dynamite and created carp highways. In other words, we connected them to the main marsh. So the carp and other fish in the water had more direct connection to these ponds. And then two ponds that were connected, we kept as controls. We didn't do anything to them. And then two ponds that were not connected, kept as controls uh, as isolated ponds. So we did uh, one year of baseline monitoring of all the ponds in their natural condition. And then we did the manipulations in 2002. And we monitored the ponds for three years afterwards. And what really surprised us was how quickly uh, the response was. You could see it the next year. Uh, after the manipulations that those ponds that we isolated either with the dike or with the carp screens, um, the water cleared, the submerged vegetation came back, frogs came back, uh, more fish were in those wetlands. But those wetlands that are naturally connected, they stayed the way they were. There wasn't much in there. The water was very turbid, not much vegetation. But those ponds that we had created those connections, those new connections, the, the submerged vegetation disappeared in the first year and the water quality was very poor uh, right from the get-go. Carp were in there uh, feeding and doing their disruption right away. So it was very quickly, it was very quick how apparent the impact of carp was. It was surprising to us that, you know, it only took a year and we could see uh, real improvement in the habitat conditions or real, dis, uh, you know, degradation of these ponds just by letting the carp in or out. That's some fantastic kind of confirmatory evidence. You'd love it when you have uh, when you have a hypothesis of what's going to happen and then your experiment laid out it, and then you get the results that actually are in support of that of that hypothesis. Or I guess maybe it's you know refute the hypothesis or whichever you way you want to talk about that. Um, but nevertheless it supported what you thought was was happening, gave you evidence in support of what you thought was happening. Um, and and then also I would just say excellent experimental design there. I, I didn't realize the the specifics of the way that study was conducted where you had the two different types of controls and then you had the uh, the actual manipulations of those um, in those other uh, i guess pairs and the other thing is how in the world did you were you able to figure out a way to play with dynamite in a research project <laughs> we're lucky we had a partner working with us with the province and uh, the guys that were helping us were actually they blow up beaver dams normally <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. That was the source of the dynamite. The yes, yeah. That. Oh, well, no, we 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 got to handle it and be there, but we didn't get to do much of the actual blowing things up. <laughs> probably, probably for the best. Yeah, I would think so. Yes, very much. Okay, so you had these results that you started getting. You started getting and. Uh, they were supporting what you thought was was happening. And I guess the next thing is to try to figure out how you translate that into a solution or, or a large-scale solution, or there's some other tests that had to be done. No, uh, based on that evidence. And then, you know, there's other projects around the Great Lakes that have been doing carp exclusion and been showing some of the benefits of that. So based on what we saw on a small scale, uh, we were able to convince, you know, uh, Ducks Unlimited Canada, our, you know, senior staff, uh, folks with the province and uh, many, many other partners 
that, you know, based on this seemed to work in the 60s or it did work in the 60s and early and through the 70s. And we can show it again on a small scale and a more experimental approach. Uh, we think this is something that the, the, the entire marsh really needs. And so the next step was really was developing and fundraising and doing the proposal for a much larger effort for the entire marsh. And how did that unfold? Who are the players? And and then just talk about the, the scale at which and even some of the logistics involved in implementing that restoration activity. So, as I said, there was lots of partners involved, Ducks Unlimited, the province of Manitoba, uh, University of Manitoba, Delta Waterfowl, lots of other organizations, agencies all coming together to, okay, we, we can do this on a small scale. It works really well. How are we going to do this on a large scale? And then the other thing is, how are we going to pay for it, of course? Uh, always comes down to money. So um, actually, there are a number of uh, folks who live around the, the marsh or have hunting lodges around the marsh who were very instrumental in starting a fundraising campaign and getting folks involved. And so it was a lot of private donors initially who really helped get the the money rolling and get the initiative to really start. And then that, you know, when you have private funds coming in, that enables matching funds, NACA, uh, the Canadian government as well, the province kicked in money and we were able to raise the funds to, to do additional research and to actually ultimately co- uh, construct the carp exclusion structures. But before we even did that, there was more research involved. We had to know how, okay, how are we going to do this on a large scale? How are we going to um, screen out one fish species, the common carp, but minimize our impact to the other 30 species that are still trying to come into the marsh? And for which the marsh is a beneficial nursery area, right? Exactly. You know, that effort I talked about in the 60s, it was not selective. It kept all large fish out of the marsh. And uh, we, in our work with the gillnet surveys, we found, you know, walleye come into the marsh in, in good numbers. And there's lots of other species that come in, large fish species, that if we were trying to do any kind of screening that would be excluded from the marsh, those fish do rely on the marsh for spawning and feeding habitat. So how do we come up with a project that um, tries to minimize the impact of common carp, so restricts the abundance of the largest, most destructive carp, but minimizes impact to the other fish species that are still trying to use the marsh. And so that was our balance there, was trying to come up with a compromise to keeping the most destructive carp out, but allowing as many of the native fish species into the marsh. And so how did you do that? Well, we actually uh, spent four years monitoring fish migration at the Delta Channel. There's a bridge there, just as you're coming into the village of Delta, uh, that has a uh, three box culverts underneath the bridge there. So we we got some help from provincial and federal fisheries, uh, figured out how we we're going to be able to monitor fish migration in the spring coming from Lake Manitoba into Delta Marsh, how to put a round net around a square hole. And uh, for four years, we monitored the migration. There was a, an earlier graduate student project back in the, in the 80s who did a little bit of fish migration monitoring, he had some issues with sampling and stuff, but gave some clues that 
you know, that uh, the fish come in at different times, particularly common carp. I mentioned there are warm water species. They tend to come in a little later. Fish like northern pike are migrating as soon as the ice is coming off. In fact, they're probably coming under the ice. White suckers, walleye are coming in shortly after the ice is off. But common carp tend to come... You know, on average, two, three weeks, that depends on water temperatures, but they do come later than the native fish species. So we did this hoop netting. So we sam- we collected all the fish that are coming into the marsh through Delta Channel. We tried to sa- start sampling as soon as the ice was off the channel. We looked at who's coming through, the timing. The other important thing was the bar screen, the separation of the opening in those screens. How wide do those need to be? Uh, to allow uh, native fish through, but restrict uh, carp. Around the Great Lakes, uh, many of the projects there use a two and a half inches, I believe that's about five centimeters, uh, to try and keep as many of the carp out as possible. We were trying to do a compromise here because we knew that it's the, you know, it's the largest, most destructive carp that we're trying to keep out. We're never going to, this is such a big system. There's so much fish and water moving. We could never try and keep all the carp out without keeping all the other fish out. There's just no way. So we thought if we can keep the largest, most destructive, really reduce the biomass there on that end of the spectrum, uh, we can still let as many of the native fish in as we can uh, and still see an improvement in marsh habitat. So we spent a lot of time actually measuring the width of fish. Everybody measures how long that fish is or how heavy that fish is. It was surprising in the literature. There was a lot, a lot of information on fish width. So we wanted to see the width spectrum, the distribution of widths of those fish. So we've measured over 60,000 fish looking at uh, length, width, weight, depth, width. And um, after those four years... Uh, we came up with a recommendation. It's 70 millimeters, and I'm drawing a blank on what that would be. I think that's 70 millimeters would be... It's three inches and two and three quarters, something like that. Something like that. Uh, spacing uh, on the bars would allow, you know, if we took an average year, uh, and every year is a little bit different, of course, so it'll have a different impact each year. The estimate we came up with is that we could still allow up to 70%, 70-80% of the walleye in, but keep out 80-90% uh, of the carp out of the marsh. So based on those four years and the recommendation on the screen size, and we don't drop this. So our screens are temporary. A lot of carp exclusion projects, the screens are permanent. Ours are temporary. We only want the screens there really when the carp are actively trying to get in the marsh to spawn. Because once you get further into the summer, they either give up trying to go in and spawn somewhere else or they just drop their eggs wherever they are. And then they turn around and they mill around for a while in the you know parts of the marsh or the lakeshore and then migrate back out into the lake. So the screens only really need to be there when the carp are actively trying to get in the marsh. So our initial recommendation was the 1st of September. We just lift the screens out for the year and then fish can move back and forth as they want. Dale, has it occurred to you in this just occurred to me as, I, as I'm listening to you talk, but did y'all, how much variation in, for a, a carp of a given mass, let's just say, how much variation in the width of that carp was there? Uh, you mean for a specific length? Yeah, let's just say. It can vary. Uh, of course, the females tend to be much wider than the males because they're full of eggs. And you think of a big spawning female, uh, if anybody can visualize what a carp looks like, that belly gets fairly 
fairly large as opposed to the males. They don't have to store all the eggs. So females definitely are wider. Interesting thing with carp though, and they, they found this, saw this in Australia as well, and they have seen this around the Great Lakes, is they're really good squeezers. <laughs> if, if, if they are wanting to get somewhere, they can really compress that body and squeeze through. So that's something we uh, haven't factored in a lot, but as we're, I mean, in fact, we're actually, we're writing up the final report for the project right now. We're actually working on the statistics to try and figure out how to factor that squeezing factor into our estimates there as well. But there can be variation, as I say, males versus females. Uh, and, you know, if we, some of the spawning carp get in, you know, it's not so bad. In fact, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here and say one of the uh, surprising results we found, and I, once we think about it, it actually makes perfect sense, was that um, there was concern among, there are commercial fishers who do harvest carp that if we kept them out of the marsh, the carp population would decline and there wouldn't be as many carp to harvest. Actually, what we found was the opposite, is that uh, we're actually finding we're producing more carp in the marsh, uh, more baby carp, because I'm again jumping ahead because conditions are getting better. The habitats improve. There's better, there's fewer carp in the marsh because we're not letting them all in. So those carp that get in, the egg success is probably much higher. And the uh, conditions for the baby carp are much better because they're not in there trashing everything. So we're actually producing more baby carp, not every year, but many of the years we're producing more baby carp now than we were before, just because the habitat's better for them too as well as the other fish species. I didn't realize that. And so you're letting in fewer carp uh, overall. Uh, yes. But then the, the carp that are getting in are generally smaller, right? Well, I guess they would be smaller because of the, the size restriction on that grate, right? Well, some, yeah, some, with the, the grate size of 70 millimeters is just when they're starting to reach sexual maturity. But also remember that uh, I, meant, I mentioned that carp are later fish arriving. That doesn't mean they all show up late. Some of them are early. And so there are some large carp that do come in before we drop the screens. And we know that's going to happen. And that's just something we have to accept. We can't keep them all out. So there are some large carp that still get in before the screens are dropped each year. So do you think, uh, and I say this kind of tongue in cheek, but it's also sort of an interesting uh, concept. So do you think over the long term that you're going to be influencing the, um, the morphology of carp? Are you going to be creating longer, more slender carp by restricting the, which ones can actually get in and reproduce? Uh, we've had that question and I'm retired. That'll be somebody else's problem <laughs> to deal with. But you can imagine that that'll become a selective pressure over yeah. you know, a long period of time. Hopefully that's a long, long, long period of time yeah. and not within, you know, most of our lifetimes and our our grandchildren's lifetimes that that'll start to happen. But you can see that that could be the case over time. Are there any other marshes there around Lake uh, Manitoba where carp go to breed? Do they have alternative or oh, yeah. spawning locations? Yeah, there's no shortage of uh, coastal wetlands. Delta represents, I think it's about 27% of the coastal wetlands around the lake. So there's ample opportunity for carp spawning and, you know, other large fish that, you know, we are going to keep some of the largest other species out that they could go to other wetlands if they wanted. So, no, there's other opportunities for that. Are carp phylopatric to their spawning areas? Do we know that? 
Actually, there's some inter- real interesting work in Lake Winnipeg, which is the a much larger lake just to the east of us, where they've actually put um, transponders in them, and uh, they've actually found that they are very phyllopatric. There, they come. That coastal wetland does have a river in it, and they're attracted to that. But they actually move a considerable distance to winter and come back year, year after year. He's, I think Doug's done the work there, but this is his third year. They are very consistent in terms of coming back to the same location uh, to spawn each year. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Dale, let's jump ahead here to talk about some of what you saw as you first implemented the, you first started to put in place these, um, these, what do we call them? Exclusion devices? These Exclusion instructions. Yes. And you had to install these on how many of the inlets coming into, into Delta Marsh? We actually ended up with seven structures that were built in the winter of 2012, 2013. Um, where that, uh, structure was at Clandeboy Channel, uh, one of the biggest ones actually, uh, was right on the lake uh, in the early 60s. And they ran into icing issues and stuff over on that bay. And so what? instead of building one right at the edge of the lake there, like they had done in the 60s, we instead built four structures around Clandeboy Bay. Clandeboy Bay is that far east side of the marsh. The terrain is a little different there. There's more glacial till there and there's more opportunities for, and you do find gravel beds and rocky areas there, and that could provide potential spawning for species like walleye. So to allow that to still be available to walleye, we didn't want to exclude that particular bay. So there's four channels that connect that bay to the rest of the marsh. So we built four structures around that bay, Clandeboy. And then, uh, so there's four there. There's one at the Delta Channel and then two over on the far west side at Cram and Deep Creek. Now, didn't y'all have uh, some logistical challenges one of the first couple of years? Maybe you had some icing issues or one of the structures got washed out or, or damaged by some ice or do I remember that correctly? Actually, uh, yeah, we had a couple of issues. Uh, 2014, actually, and it wasn't in the winter. It was in the summer. We had high water and a major, as I said, this is a wind system. So the winds come down the lake, push the water in. Uh, With high water on the lake, it actually washed out the dikes on either side of a couple of the structures. So those, that was 2014 and uh, we had to repair those the next, actually we had to do a temporary repair the next year because the water was so high. It was actually 2016, the winter between 2015, 2016. We have to do all the construction in the winter time when the ground's solid enough to bring in the heavy equipment. But yeah, that was uh, 2014 when uh, some of the dikes got washed out, unfortunately. And actually the year before, we actually ran into some issues um, the very first year, 2013. Um, we put rock riprap along the shorelines right around the structures just to protect the, di- uh, the, the, the channel sides. And what we found is the carp uh, would get just beyond that and actually start working on the channel and they were actually starting to dig a new channel around our structures. 
<laughs> that's how the heavy the biomass can be and their desire to go where they want to go. And um, if you'd have given them a couple of decades, they would have put a new channel right around all our structures. Oh, so we I have to, no, no doubt. Yeah. So we had to put more riprap down just to protect the channels further away from the structures. And when you say the sheer biomass, you are, you're not joking. I've seen some, some videos, I've seen some pictures and actually I think it was on Lake Erie where they have a structure into forget the marsh, McGee Marsh, maybe I'm probably going to get that wrong. Maybe it's Ottawa National Wildlife Refuge. Anyway, they have a structure over there to keep the carp out of one of those marshes and I've been on site at that location when the carp are trying to come in to spawn and you could it's it's unbelievable the amount of carp that are there at the surface of the water. And I'm sure they're stacked from top to bottom in the water column. Uh, and they are massive fish. And it look, looks like you could just walk right over the backs of them and not get your feet wet. It's truly remarkable. And I, again, encourage people to get online and do some kind of search. I don't know if, if there's any information on a DU website where we show some of these pictures. But if you want to search for carps at an exclusion structure or something like that, you'll probably find a video or a picture showing you the sheer biomass. Yeah, there are a couple on YouTube that you can find. Delta Marsh Carp Exclusion. I think there's some videos there. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. It's worth it. It is. It is. So uh, carp are a low value fish, but because there's such an abundance there, there are commercial fishers that are now harvesting the carp at the structures. They're using seines to pull across. So, you know, there's not a lot of value to them, but you can fairly easily harvest a significant biomass. And one of the interesting things is the, actually the row from the females is almost worth more or is worth more sometimes than the flesh and uh, because the roe is blended up and made into some Turkish and some Greek dishes. It's kind of like a, I've heard it described as a chip dip or a cracker dip that's got a fish flavor to it. And I can't remember the name. Uh, anything else that we need to cover with respect to actually implementing these restoration measures? I know we want to here pretty soon start talking about how the marsh has responded, both in terms of vegetation as well as, um, as well as the duck numbers. And I think what we, it's important to emphasize again is the scale of this restoration project. We're talking about a massive area, massive undertaking. And so it's not like a, a simple, even 1,000 acre or 2,000 acre restoration project. We're talking of a, a massive undertaking. So anything else to, to discuss before we start talking about the outcomes? No, it was a massive undertaking, you know, for the engineering staff to design the structures to, you know, to, you know, to be able to stand the water pressure. Because I remember, again, that water moves back and forth continually. And we had some pretty significant uh, water events in 2014. You know, the dikes hadn't had time yet to settle. So it's, it's, it's quite an area. It's 45,000 acres. So it's a huge area to try and manage. And that's a lot of water moving through just those four openings. Uh, well, Clandeboy, but coming through the seven structures uh, back and forth on a daily basis. So uh, the engineers get a lot of credit for the design and robustness of the structures that uh, they put in there that, uh, will handle this for hopefully many, many, many decades to come. Absolutely. The importance and the knowledge that the importance of our engineers and the knowledge they bring to our projects cannot be overstated. They are an integral role in everything that we do in terms of these conservation solutions. So thanks for, for pointing that out. 
let's let's talk about what we saw in terms of recovery, both of the vegetation and and the waterfowl numbers. I know that's always one of the questions that I would ask you every time I would see you, every time I would talk with either Bob Emery or Scott Stevens or someone. I'd like, how's the marsh coming? How's it? How's it? How's the recovery? And so, just uh, fill us in on on the good news. I guess we should say. From 2013, which is the first year of carp exclusion, through 2018, so we were monitoring for those six years. Um, we had to do this, actually, we did it for our own information to see how the marsh is responding and everything, but also we were required to do this because fish habitat is a federal government responsibility in Canada, and to get an authorization to uh, interfere with fish migration, the federal government gave us uh, a permit to do this, but requiring us to do the monitoring as well to show, you know, that we are in fact minimizing impact to the native fish community. And that's the report I mentioned that we're writing right now. It's a pretty extensive report uh, talking about uh, how the fish community responded uh, to the six years, you know, what's happened to large fish, small fish, uh, relative abundance, the composition, the community structure and all of that. Uh, But also it also includes the information on the habitat responses. And while the federal government may not be as interested in the duck response, we are and we're telling them that as well because that's always a good news story so we were like with the the small scale project we were really surprised again and how quickly we saw the responses in the marsh even within the first two couple years we saw submerged vegetation returning particularly to those smaller bays uh, along the north side that aren't exposed to the the wind and wave action from the north winds um came in very quickly. Water milfoil, uh, a native species of water milfoil, really took off. Sago pondweed has been coming back. But what even surprised me was, I think it was 2016, 2017, one of the large bays over on the east side, Waterhand, which these large bays are several miles across. You can think that it's going to take a long time for uh, that recovery to happen in those big bays. You can see the sheltered areas, okay. They're not as exposed to wind and waves. And gradually that recovery of the submerged vegetation would start to creep into those. But in 2017, Waterhen Bay, which is several miles across on that far east side, I was truly amazed by the amount of submerged vegetation that came in. And so we're hoping and we will continue to see that kind of response uh, right through the marsh. So uh, water milfoil, sago pondweed, as I mentioned, is very important to canvasbacks. And um, providing those tubers and that is starting to really show uh, a recovery. It's a little slower than the water milfoil. We think that's just part of the biology and how they uh, reproduce and expand. But And the water clarity is starting to uh, improve as well. Again, more so in the smaller, shallower areas, uh, but we hope that'll continue over time. We'll start to see that recovery in the larger areas of the marsh as well. And then the duck response has been, you know, what's made everybody really happy. Um, the numbers of lesser scop and canvasbacks uh, are back to where they were in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, and um, canvasback numbers actually, since carp exclusion, are actually higher than they were in the They're statistically not different, but if you look at the mean, it's higher. And so that was, uh, that's a really good uh, indicator that, um, 
And those that response is independent of what's happening to canvasback populations in North America. So it's indicative of what's actually happening on the marsh. So that's been uh, a very gratifying, and the hunting community has really seen that and been very supportive of the work we're doing. Those are great outcomes. Now, last year was, remind me of what the deal was last year, because we were there, uh, we were able to come up for a visit and try our hand at hunting and uh, we shot more gadwall than we did anything else. Uh, you, you know this is going to happen. You're out there. You're spending a lot of time and effort over six years monitoring, understanding the changes. And the year you're not out there, something changes. And uh, what we what has happened is we've seen the lowest water levels um, last year. And unfortunately, looking again this year, lowest water levels we've seen in several decades on the marsh. And so even, even though the veg, you know, the water is shallower and you think, oh, the light's going to get through better and everything. What it does mean is that the wave action stirs up the sediments even more. Yeah. Cause it's a real fine, it's like, it's a real fine uh, substrate, right? Yes. And so last year we got concerns that, hey, we're seeing, not seeing the birds. You know, I see more carp in the marsh, though there's no vegetation. And actually, this is not unusual. Other carp exclusion projects have said, yeah, you know, carp are really important, but they're not the only driver of everything that happens in these systems. And water levels are very important. We always used to think, oh, shallow water, more light, you know, it's going to be better. Actually, shallow water is worse because the wave action tears up the submerged vegetation, disrupts the sediments, and your recovery is actually set back. And this year, kind of looking, we're in the same boat. Water levels are getting low. It could be another poor year on the marsh. But uh, once the water levels do come back, then we hope that that recovery will, you know, get back on track and continue uh, moving forward. The low water levels, Dale, is that uh, is that a product of reduced precipitation in the drainage basin there yes, around the did. lake? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that's interesting. The Great Lakes are at record high levels. And then we go to the northwest a little bit, Lake Manitoba, and we've got some of the lowest water levels in, in decades. Huh. Yep. Yeah. It's, uh, as I said, it's a, it's, um, a very dynamic system and that's just part of what's going on. So I talked about the water control structure at the North end on the Fairford river. Well, if there's no water, they can't, even if they can stop the structures, it doesn't matter. It's the lake's still going to go down and the lake goes down, the marsh goes down and there's nothing you can do about it. And in our case, uh, it's just part of the natural cycle. It'll allow the mud flats to be exposed, the seed bank to germinate. And it's important to some of the other plant communities, uh, the emergent plants and stuff in the marsh as well. So it's all part of the dynamic system and the way these systems have evolved over time. Very interesting, Dale. Well, I think the last question I had for you was just sort of what's next. I know, I know you retired and you might just simply say, I don't know, that's out of my hands. That's up to the next person that comes along <laughs> and that's an acceptable answer. But do you have an idea of, yeah, where do we go? Where do we go from here? Yeah. One of the other concerns is the nutrients that are coming in, eutrophication. And I, that's a common theme with every aquatic ecosystem in North America. And uh, we have had some students now who have looked at the nutrient loading to the marsh. The marsh seems to be able to absorb what's coming in, although I'm the last person you should ask to characterize what the results of their projects are. Uh, but there is a concern that uh, that's come up, for example, is, okay, you've got less carp in the marsh, the water's getting clearer, but that also means it's better for algae to grow too. So it's this 
um, competition between the submersed vegetation and the algae for the nutrients that are coming in. And if you can overload the system uh, to an extent where the algae can take advantage of it and take off, and then they can block the light and prevent the submersed vegetation from coming in. So uh, a report that uh, our, one of our other research scientists is going to be working on is to look at the nutrient side of things and kind of give us an idea of whether that's a concern moving forward and whether we need to uh, start thinking more about how we try and reduce the nutrient loading to the Delta Marsh ecosystem. So what you're saying is that ecosystems are not single factor and they are not always linear. Exactly. <laughs> and that, uh, that complicates it, Dale. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, no, and we know these systems are very complex. Yes, absolutely. That, that's what makes them fascinating. That's what makes them challenging to explain, uh, challenging and exciting to understand and unravel some of these stories and some of the, some of the, problems that, that we're seeing. Uh, but thankfully, we have smart people, dedicated people like yourself who spent your career investigating some of these issues and helping to develop solutions to them. So, uh, Dale, personally, I thank you for all the great work that you've done to help us understand what was going on with Delta Marsh and the important role that you played in, in helping us uh, arrive at a uh, at a solution, a restoration uh, solution, and, and uh, yeah, putting us on, on a much better path at this point. Well, I've just been so fortunate to be part of this and just, you know, my timing just happening to be in the right place at the right time. It's just, you know, a pleasure for me to to be there and to see the positive results that came out of this. A lot of people have been concerned about Delta for decades. And as long as we can get some water back and keep the submerged veg recovery going and keep everything going in the right way, uh, everybody will be happy. And I think it's, you know, it's just, my, I'm just really grateful to be part of that, uh, that big picture with all these people involved in trying to restore this very important wetland. Yeah. Well, just know that, uh, that I and some of my colleagues are going to be holding you and Scott Stevens and everyone else accountable for the water levels. Cause uh, you know, every now and then we like to get up there and visit the marsh in the fall. So yeah. Uh, yeah. We'll be checking in and see how y'all are doing. Okay. Well, come on up. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dale, for your time and expertise. It was great to catch up with you and thanks for sharing with this exciting story. Well, Mike, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. A special thanks to our guest on today's show. Dr. Dale Robleski, retired scientist with Ducks Unlimited Canada's Institute for Wetland and Waterfowl Research. We greatly appreciate him sharing his time and expertise with us on the history, decline, and recovery of Delta Marsh in Manitoba. It's an exciting story. It has a lot of meaning to me, and I hope you found it entertaining and interesting as well. We also thank our producer, Clay Baird, CB, for the great work that he does on these podcasts. And then, of course, to you, our listener, you're the most important part of this venture. We thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DE Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. 
Learn more at ProPlantSport.com. 